uh, witnessed the baptism, baptisms of uh, Angela Presnell and, and uh, Cassie Carlisle, Cassandra Carlisle for mum. Um, and I just thought it'd be great to, um, before we actually have the baptism, just to share briefly about what it is, because some of us probably quite clear, and maybe there are others of us who um, don't know much or not sure of what it really is. Well, in short, baptism is an outward sign. It's an outward sign of what Cassie and Ange have made the decision in their heart. The Bible makes it very clear that although every person who has ever been um, kind of lived on this earth has been intended to have a relationship with God, each person has chosen to kind of turn their backs from God, to reject Him, to ignore Him, and the relationship that He therefore offers to us. In this way, people have chosen to, um, to make themselves king and, and ruler of their life and have kind of ignored or rejected God, the, the true king of the, the universe, the world. And God makes it very clear that when people do this, when they ignore God, don't pay him any attention or reject God, that their relationship with him is broken. And the rejection or sin, if you like, needs to be needs to be dealt with. And that in order for people to have this vibrant, real, tangible relationship with God, they need to have their sin, their, the way they've rejected God, forgiven. And the amazing thing is, is that God in His great love, He sends Jesus, His Son, into the world when, where Jesus dies upon a cross. And when He... <clears throat> when he when he died, he was receiving the punishment that people deserve for their sin, for their rejection of God. And that whoever then believes in Jesus, whoever turns to Jesus and believes and, and trusts that he died for them, they receive forgiveness. They receive perfect forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And they then can enter this amazing relationship with God for all eternity. So baptism is the outward sign that someone has died to living for themselves and ignoring God and they've said yes to putting their trust and belief in Jesus that he died for them. It's the dying to the old ways of life and receiving forgiveness for any ignoring or, or rejecting God. Forgiveness, it's only in Jesus. Now tonight we're going to see um, Angela and, uh, and Cassie. They're going to go down into the water. And they're going to go completely under the water with no snorkel or goggles, which was their request at the start. Um, and the symbolism is that they're kind of like, they're dying. They're going under. They're dying to their old way of life when they used to ignore God. And then we're going to see them come out of water. And uh, the image is of like rising to new life, coming out of the water, rising to a new way of living. And if you like, the image is also of like being washed, being purified. So anything they've ever done wrong, anything they'll ever do in the future, with their faith in Jesus, they're washed and they're purified. They're clean. They're restored to a relationship with God forever. So baptism shows that they love Jesus. And they want to live the rest of their life in obedience to Him. Well, let's invite 
uh, Angela Presnell to the front. Let's give her a warm, encouraging, super encouraging <laughs> round of applause. Keep it going. You can't see the shaking, but she's doing good. I never took part in religious education either. When I started high school, a lot of things changed for me. I found myself struggling with a lot of different things, but had nobody to talk to because everyone seemed to have their own problems to deal with. Me having my own problems made me into a person that would turn to the wrong thing to find comfort. Jesus wasn't a part of my life at all. I didn't have a very good understanding about who he was. In Year 7, I came to Youth United with Hannah. My first impressions of youth was, whoa, these people are so different to me. I had fun, but I didn't take it very seriously. It wasn't something I was interested in. I also made some great friends there. I hope, um, hold on. I didn't go very often, but I went a few more times during year eight. It wasn't something I really fitted into my life. I mostly went on social nights, which I started to really enjoy. I realised that the people there weren't so different. I made some great friends there, and everyone was so nice and confident. They weren't like the people I hanged out with at all. At the start of year nine, my problems got worse. Hannah and I became closer. My, Hannah became my best friend. I talked to her about everything and started going to youth regularly. It became something we did every Friday if we could. I found myself getting really interested in learning more about Jesus. I saw how many people knew, knew him. After D teams one night, in which Phil was our leader, I suddenly had a lot more interest. So Hannah offered to lend me a Bible. I accepted and that night read and underlined many verses. One particular got to me. Matthew chapter 10 verses 32 to 33. If you tell others you belong to me. I'll tell my father in heaven that you are my followers but if you reject me I'll tell my father in heaven you don't belong to me. This really made me think because I had rejected Jesus before I became a Christian. Did this mean I couldn't become a Christian? I called up Hannah the next day and she explained to me what it meant. I thought about it a lot and read the Bible regularly. I talked to Hannah about becoming a Christian. Then I decided to give my life to Jesus. It was the best decision I've ever made. Most of my friends and all my family were happy for me. I remember telling everyone and being really excited. Most people were happy about it as well. Some people questioned and asked why I was doing it and all of that kind of stuff, but I didn't let it get to me. Hannah and I went to church the following Sunday. That Sunday, it was the first time I've ever been to an actual church service besides going with my school. It was really good, and now I find myself looking forward to church during the week. I love going to learn about God, seeing my friends, and meeting new people. It's just great. Jesus made in math is a massive part of my life and is always listening to me and answering my prayers. I feel as though I have somebody to talk to now and I don't have to go through life on my own. Yeah. That's great. Well, let's invite um, Cassie Carlisle up. Yeah. Warm, encouraging. I grew up in a Christian family in Yakindetta. We went to church on Sundays, and what I remember of that when I was younger was playing thumb wars, shoulder wrestles, and making aeroplanes with the bulletins, and taking the communion after sermon with the help of siblings. <laughs> I, knew, I never knew anything about the thing I was supposed to believe in, except that God loved me and Jesus died for me. I didn't understand why, but he did. I was going to kids' church on and off, learning new things about God and this character Jesus. When I was nine, my parents slip, sp split up, and I moved to Beechworth with my mum. This had a big impact on my life. For me, Beechworth was massive compared to Yak. The primary school had about double the amount of kids. At, the point, at this point of my life, I had no friends that I knew of that had the same beliefs as me. 
The first time one of my friends found, found out that I believe, what I believed and that I go to church and stuff, the thing she said was, well, you're not weird or anything like the people on TV. In a strange way, that boosted my confidence. When I turned 10, I got my first Bible. I read it now and again, but not heaps. I did enjoy it and learnt from it. At the end of year six, at kids' church one morning, I'm not sure what we were learning, but my Bible study leader, Mandy Walker, said that she was going to say a prayer and that if we were ready to put our trust in Jesus Christ, then we could pray along, so I did. Around this time, my nana, mum, and three older sisters got baptised. They were all so much older than me, so I thought I'd have to wait a while before my turn. As I started high school, I started Youth United as well. At Youth, the passion the leaders have for God and his son is just so awesome. I soon realised that I'd trusted in Jesus but was missing that spark. As I learnt more, I came to appreciate and really love Jesus Christ. As I began to get confidence to tell people in what I believe, most of my closest friends I have found believe the same thing, which is great. My mum, not long, long ago, told me a favourite verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you cannot bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Knowing that if God brings me to it, he will bring me through it gave me total confidence. So at the start of year, the year, I decided that I was ready to show everyone and anyone that I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and my sins, and I have faith in him, and I look forward to learning more about him. Yeah. Can you stay here? Do you want to come up, Cass? Uh, sorry, Ange. This would be great before we uh, go back to the baptism um, to pray for these guys. Um, how awesome is it just to uh, hear what's been going on for them? So let's pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, your love for us. Thank you so much that uh, you love um, both Cassie and Ange and you've been doing this thing in their life, just somehow working here and reminding them and showing them that you do really have a, a great love for them and that you desire to have a relationship with them. And Father, we pray that um, they would grow from strength to strength, that they would know your presence and your comfort and, and know what it is to live for you, um, both now and, and for the rest of their days. Um, yeah, we thank you for the, the encouraging testimony they've just spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, isn't that fantastic just to be part of witnessing people standing up like that and declaring that Christ has made them free? I don't think I'll try and move that. I might just move up here. Um, it's great to feel free, isn't it? And to be able to declare that I've tr put my trust in Jesus Christ and to stand in front of people and to say together that Christ has made me free. I wonder if you've known what it's uh, been like, though, to feel trapped. Uh, I wonder if you've known what it's been like to feel trapped in a place where you feel like there's no way out. Maybe it's for you it's... Uh, been like in a family situation that just every day seems hopeless and helpless and you feel like there's just no way out of the pain and the struggles that are going on there. Perhaps for you it's been an addiction of some kind where you have tried really to, to break that and to have victory and yet you felt trapped in many ways and unable to be released from that. It could be that your just whole life feels like you're not living the way God meant you to, to live and you feel trapped in that. Tonight, you might even identify with someone who was physically uh, trapped. Um, the guy's name 
is this guy here, Aaron Ralston. And uh, Aaron is a 27-year-old outdoorsman, an adventurer. And he was on a day's hike through a remote and narrow Utah canyon in America when a falling boulder wedged his right hand against the canyon wall. Um, recovering from the searing pain, Aaron found himself completely stuck. Five endless days passed while he eliminated his options one by one. He tried using his penknife to chip away at the boulder, but it made only a tiny dent in it. He tried rigging up a pulley uh, from above him that would pull the rock off, but the rock was too heavy to move at all. On the fifth night, racked by uncontrollable shivers as the temperature plummeted, Aaron scratched his epitaph on the canyon wall, his last words to be remembered by. He was certain that he would not see daylight. No one knew where we, he was and no one was coming to rescue him. On the back of the book, as I'm reading, it says he was only sustained through that terrible night by hallucinatory visions of his parents, his friends, even his future son. Yet with a new morning, a moment came where he realised that if he could use the rock's vice-like hold on his arm to break his arms, his arm's bone, and use his blunted penknife to serve like a surgeon's blade, he could cut himself free. Aaron Rouston cut off his own arm after breaking it to escape from being trapped. He walked out of that deserted place with one arm, half his arm gone, and he walked to help and he found someone who raised the alarm and he was flown back. And he's written a book to tell about it, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I mean, I'm sure that's never happened to any of you, right? But maybe when you think about the pain that he went through, uh, the long nights that he had, the agony of what he was facing, perhaps you can identify that a little bit. We've been looking together as a church over the past uh, weeks from the book of Exodus. And we've been looking together at the kind of way that many of the children of Israel were trapped. You know, they were trapped in Egypt, not just for a few years. They were trapped for 430 years, the children of Israel. They, many people died and they gave birth to children in captivity and they were slaves and they waited and waited and waited for a time when they would be released and then God heard their cries and he called to Moses from out in the wilderness and he said go I want you to go and I want you to talk to Pharaoh in Egypt and say to him let my people go and the Israelites who were in captivity in Egypt God heard their cries, heard their oppression, realised that they were trapped and instead of standing off indifferently and not caring about their situation and their trappedness, 
He came to rescue them. He sent Moses. We looked a few weeks ago at how Moses came and things went from bad to worse. And Moses had to learn to keep on obeying God no matter what, even when things went bad. This week, if you have your Bibles uh, with you and uh, you're able to turn, look along, we could go to uh, Exodus 7 and we're just going to skip through a few passages tonight because we're going to cover uh, what happened, what God did to let his people go, to make Pharaoh Uh, let his people go tonight. And I think what we're going to see is there's a God who hates to see people trapped, who God who's all-powerful and hates to see people trapped and wants to set them free, just like these girls have said that Christ has come and and they've been forgiven, set free. First, in in Exodus chapter 7, I want you to note what happens when Moses comes and he says, let my people go. The first plague that God sends happens, Exodus chapter 7. And if you look at uh, 14, uh, chapter, verse 14 to verse 18, this is what it reads. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water, wait on the bank of the Nile and meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. The fish of the Nile will die and the river will stink the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So Moses goes and he says this to Pharaoh. Uh, You know, what happened came to to be. Moses struck the Nile and it turned to blood. God performed an incredible miracle in this time. You know, this was devastating for the people of Egypt, the Egyptians. You know why? Because their life... Uh, their life came from the Nile, the water, the water that just flowed right through the Nile was so important to them and now this was turned to blood. They had no water apart from the very small amounts that they would have had in their houses. Not only was it devastating for them because the fish that were in the Nile died and they had nothing that they could, no, they couldn't eat any more fish. It impacted the things that they ate. God's first punch was a body blow to the Egyptian people. These people that had been holding the Israelites in captivity. And God says, let my people go. His first plague that he sent really affected them greatly. Verse 20 says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and he struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians couldn't drink its water. Blood was everywhere. I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like. Imagine if we went home tonight and turned on our taps and blood came out. And we thought, oh, that's all right, at least we can go to the, the hose. And blood came out of that too. This is just horrible. 
it was terrible, and yet this is what happened. Imagine if uh, the, all the things that grew, like the fish, we couldn't have any fish anymore and things like that. And, and if that was me, you know what I would have done if I was Pharaoh living in that time? I would have said, God, you want your people to go? Moses, take them and be off. That's it. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he said, instead of letting the people go, he said, I'm not going to let my people go. Not on your life. There's no way. And as a matter of fact, he, he, the, Pharaoh turned on his heels and strolled back to his palace and shrugged off the whole incident, ignoring what God had done in this incredible uh, miracle. It says in verse 23 of chapter 7, Instead, he turned and went into his palace and he didn't even take this to heart. The king didn't even give it a passing thought. The Lord's word meant nothing to him. Who is the Lord, he'd said earlier on. Uh, his words were like water off a duck's back. It's the first plague, the plague of blood. Many were to follow. The second one that came was the plague of frogs. Can you believe it? Frogs came all over Egypt. In verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 8 of Exodus, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. And that's what happened. He refused to let them go. And everywhere, wall to wall, were frogs. In their all different rooms of their homes, all around. Look what it says in Exodus 8.3. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed in the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs would have looked horrible. They would have been yuck. They would have been slimy and made all croaks during the night. It would have been unbearable to, to, to think about. You know, you'd go to have a sandwich or something and out would jump a frog. It would be terrible. In Queensland, um, the cane tones have been growing steadily and uh, apparently you can just drive at times of year and there are just cane toads carpeted over the road and you just, you know, ride all over them. And this just would have been what it was like. Cane toads everywhere. There would have been frogs all around uh, from every place. Now, you think that would be enough to have worn Pharaoh down, you know, having frogs all around after the, and the blood as well. And you would have thought that he would have got the message and said, okay, God, message received. Okay, Moses, your God is doing this to us. I'm going to leave it now. You can let the people go. But he didn't. The message was not received. And even so, God was gracious and he not only turned the blood back into fresh water, but he fixed and took care of the problems of the frogs as well. Verse uh, 12 to 15 of Exodus 8 says, After Moses and Aaron had left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses had asked. The frogs died in the house, in the courtyards and in the fields and they were piled into heaps, there's heaps of them, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, 
he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. You know, with the pressure off again, Pharaoh returned to his stubbornness. And in spite of, you know, the people suffering, in spite of all that they'd seen, he's continued to remain tough as leather. This is just the start, but the plagues continued. This is just the beginning. Instead of him getting softer and softer, he seemed to get more and more hard-hearted. What followed was the plague of gnats. Gnats are like little, you know, almost mozzy kind of things that, to look at. Uh, then what followed after them was a plague of flies. And then there was a plague on the livestock so that all uh, the livestock of the Egyptians died but the livestock of, the, of the Israel were spared and they were, none of them died. Then came the plague of boils where sores just burst out all over the people in Egypt and covered them. Then the plague of hail came, one that was so strong that it had never been seen one like that before. And Moses warned the people and some of Pharaoh's officials listened and responded and Israel obeyed and they, and they put all their livestock under cover and they moved in from outdoors so that they didn't. But those who ignored were killed by the hailstorm. It was so savage. It got the livestock and it ruined crops as well. And what we see here is plague after plague is just decimating the Egyptians. God's bringing judgment on this tough, hard-hearted people who had oppressed the Israelites for so many years, who'd treated them harshly, who had caused so much devastation to them. And, and God is judging them by bringing plagues that would really destroy uh, their livelihood. This time, at the end of the livestock one, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said in Exodus 9, verses 27 to 28, This time I have sinned. Pharaoh said, admit it. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are wrong. Pray to the Lord for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. But predictably again, when Moses prayed and God stopped the hail, Pharaoh's heart hardened and he would not let them go. And then after that came another plague, the locusts that God sent, and they destroyed all the food. They just ate. If you, people have reported on being in, in swarms of locusts and they just eat everything in their path and just destroy everything. So now all the food that's ever been grown in Egypt is getting eaten away. And, and then came another plague, the plague of darkness, thick darkness for three days over the land. Darkness that... You know, even lighting lamps kind of had little effect. It was so thick and dark and heavy. And after all these plagues, could Pharaoh's heart still be hard towards God? Well, the answer is yes, it could and it was. He kept a hard heart towards God. And it finally led to the final kind of confrontation described in Exodus 10, 28. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. 
The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses said, I will never appear before you again, verse 29 says. And you know, that's the way it turned out. Apart from the prediction of the final plague, Moses never saw Pharaoh face to face again. So I want you just to note a couple of things about all these plagues so far. God will go the extra mile. God will go out of his way to free those who are in captivity. God cared that people were in bondage for all that time. He, He cared that people were being oppressed and mistreated and treated harshly. God cared and he went to great lengths to free them, to break them out of their bondage and out of their chains. And you know what? The same God today cares when he sees people trapped and in bondage, not able to live the kind of life that he's called them to live. God is like a lover to the children of Israel, persisting, coming and saying, let my people go, let my people go. He's like a rescuer looking for his people, trying to grab them and release them and help them. And so he sends plague after plague to wear down the hard hearts of the Egyptians. He never gives up. Do you know what? God loves you and he won't be put off. He wants you to come to know him. He wants to give you life and life to the full. He wants you to know the kind of joy that Cassie and Angie have. You know, he wants you to be set free. Uh, what about you? Are you responding to his love? I mean, are you responding to God as he reaches out to you? Or are you hardening your heart like Pharaoh did? You're saying, oh, you know, I don't really need to listen. It's not that big a deal to turn your back on God or just to not listen to him or just live a life that's so full that he's just sort of pushed out to the side. You know, it's no big deal. God doesn't really care about that sort of stuff. Or are you responding? Are you responding? The second thing just to think about is as a we see what happened in these chapters, it's pretty clear that it's unwise, isn't it, to take on the Lord God Almighty. It's unwise to harden your heart against him because he will not stop um, after warning you, after warning, after warning. God won't hold back. You see, it's an unwise to stand in the face of the almighty God and say, I'm going to snub my nose at you. I'm going to live my own way. And the people of Israel were learning that in a very clear way. Have you known about the truth of God and yet just kind of kept brushing it away? You keep kind of ignoring God's clear uh, truths that you've started to understand. Like you may have been reading the Bible or heard people 
uh, or, or just sense God speaking clearly to you through people or through his word or through everyday events and yet you've been just hardening your heart and ignoring him or saying no. It's an unwise thing to ignore the Lord God Almighty. Do you know, in chapter 11 is the final plague of all of them. And verses 4 to 7 of chapter 11 have five truths that are spelt out clearly to Pharaoh. And this is what he, what, what, what he says. First of all, the first truth is that something is going to happen. This is what Moses says to Pharaoh. Something's going to happen. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. The second uh, truth, all of Egypt's firstborns will die. Verse 5 says, Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who sits at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. This is tragic. Something's going to happen. Secondly, all of Egypt's firstborn will die. The third truth, and I want you to notice as Moses is telling this to Pharaoh, uh, he's saying even your firstborn will die, Pharaoh, too. This is what's going to happen. Thirdly, there will be national distress. Verse 6 says uh, of chapter 11, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. Fourthly, Israel will be protected. They'll be looked after. Verse 7 says, But among the Israelites not a dog will bark or at a man or an animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt, those who ignore him, those who oppress, those who turn from him, and Israel. The final truth is there will be an exodus. Verse 8 says, All of these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So Moses makes it clear to Pharaoh, something's going to happen. All of Egypt's firstborn will die. There will be national distress. Israel will be protected and there will be an exodus. It's pretty clear, isn't it? All you have to do is to obey what God says. And Pharaoh totally ignores the advice. The people of Israel who have been caught in captivity for so many years, those who had been treated harshly, cruelly, ruthlessly, were just hours away from freedom. The only thing that stood between them and freedom was obedience, to do what God was telling them to do. And this is what chapter 11 says that they were to do, to be able to be set free, to be able to avoid the coming judgment that Moses had told about. This is what they had to do. On the 10th day of the 10th month, they were to take a lamb, a lamb 
a, a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, a good one, to take it out from the, from the, uh, from the group, from the herd. They were to take, the, take care of that lamb until the 14th day of the month. And on that night at twilight, they were to kill the lamb. And what they were to do was they were to take some of the blood from the lamb and to wipe it on the door posts, on the sides and across the top of the door frames. And they were to do that. And then that same night, they were to eat the rest of the lamb, to roast it, to put it on the fire and eat it together so that none of it was left in the house. And on that night, God said, he would pass through Egypt and take and strike down Take the life of every firstborn male, both men and animals, bringing judgment upon Egypt. Now the blood on the, side, on the doors would be the sign to God that the people inside the house were obedient to him and wanted to not die themselves, but to put the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb that would take their judgment in their place. And that would be posted on the doorsteps. And that way God would come along and see that a lamb has died in the place of the firstborn son in that home. And he would pass over the house. And there would be mercy there would be an avoidance of judgment. There would be grace shown because of the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. The only thing that stood between the judgment of God and the forgiveness was the shed blood of the Lamb. That night, The angel of the Lord came through Egypt and death came to every home that ignored God's instructions. People died. Lives were taken. Uh, those who had not obeyed God and had snubbed their nose at him and ignored him and said, it, God really doesn't mean what he says he means. To those houses, death came. And God judged just as he said he would. But to those who obediently went and took the one-year-old male lamb without defect and killed it and put the blood over the lamb, the Lord passed over. There was great sorrow and there was great rejoicing. Those who the Lord had passed over were so thankful and were so thrilled and were so overwhelmed at God's mercy to them. Those who were lost loved ones in their home because of their disobedience were full of mourning and sorrow. And what happened was God released his people from captivity and the exodus took place. Do you know, what God was doing was allowing a substitute to take the place 
of what the people deserved. See, everyone had turned their noses against God, but only those who obediently put their hope and faith in God's instructions and slaughtered the lamb were spared. And do you know what happened? From that day on, people who were sinful, whose sins between them and God had cut them off from relationship with God, took a lamb and they sacrificed the lamb and asked God to forgive their sins and to punish the lamb instead of them. And God accepted that as a sacrifice. Then something strange started to happen. Through the Bible, the prophets started talking about a lamb that would come. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Isaiah 53 talked about a lamb that would come and would die once and for all. And then the writers started to talk about this lamb being a man of sorrows. People were wondering, what is going on here? Who is this one that will come and will, will die? When Jesus came, when he walked on the streets, he said things that nobody else had ever said. He taught with authority. He healed people. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its abundance. When John the Baptist first laid eyes on Jesus, do you know what he said in John 1? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the one who the prophets looked forward to. The one who you and I, Cassie, Angela, Phil, everybody who has put their trust in the one Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, can find forgiveness, can find freedom, can find new life. Why is this? Well, the Bible clearly says that our sin has cut us off from God. It separates us from him because a holy God can't have relationship with sinful, unholy people. But those who trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, who was put to death on a cross, just like the cross from the door, door, hand, door sides and the doorposts. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ can find forgiveness of sin, be made right with God and be released from their captivity. And the question tonight is if you've got a hard heart, about that? Are you saying, well, it doesn't matter to me? Or are you saying, I'm going to put my trust in the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away my sin, to forgive me, to release me, to give me freedom and new life.
God has made a way. He sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Put your trust in him. Give him your life and avoid his judgment and begin a loving relationship with the God who's made it possible for you to know him. Let's pray, shall we? God, tonight we want to thank you that you have made a way for people far from you, for people caught in captivity, for people caught in addictions, for people caught in brokenness, for people caught feeling like their life has no purpose, to find forgiveness, to find meaning, to find new life. And God, we thank you that this is not dependent on us and our good works or us trying to earn it, but it comes all because you have come to earth. You have died on a cross. You, Lord Jesus, are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, I pray tonight that those who haven't put your trust in you would put their trust in you would say yes. That those who haven't put their trust in you would pray with someone tonight, would ask a friend, would want to talk more. Oh God, thank you that your mercy and your love means that you go to extraordinary lengths to save us. We thank you and we accept your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.